Yes, it is true that we are from Herman. Do I have any, how, how many Trojan basketball players are here? No Trojan basketball players, but we do have Trojans in the congregation this morning. Well, as a dad of a Herman Hawk basketball player, I will say this. The Trojans have made Herman what they are. Okay, let's, you guys have given us a good fight and uh, anyway, we appreciate it. Joy and I are distinctly privileged to be with you this morning and uh, look forward to sharing with you God's Word. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, we're going to read through the whole chapter. And then, at probably about the midpoint of my sermon, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 5. Now, it may not seem that these passages go together, but I promise you they do. Rev, uh, excuse me, Isaiah chapter 6, beginning with verse 1, we read, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from, with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go, and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant, the houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like the terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Let us pray. Lord, that your words would come from my mouth and that you would be pleased with the meditation of my heart. Lord, I pray that your gospel would go forth this morning and Lord, that even the preacher might be convicted. In the name of Jesus Christ, our King, we pray. Amen. So, 
being from Herman, I live actually at the west end of the Bangor International Airport. I live so close to the flight path that I can read tail numbers as they go over. And one of the, one of the images that this passage of Isaiah brings to my mind is the noisy F-16 fighters, when they go over at 5 o'clock in the morning, they kind of rattle the dishes a little bit. Maybe even the, you know, the, the sound waves are a little shocking. But let me tell you, the sky grows dark, the moon turns to blood, and the earth shakes when the largest transport plane in the world, built by the Russians, flies over. It's a scary thought. Another image that this passage brings to my mind is the 1989 earthquake that hit San Francisco. I was two hours south of San Francisco in Monterey, California, attending the Defense Language Institute. And uh, we were sitting down having dinner. And then the bottom fell out from underneath me. And we rode the roller coaster of an earthquake for a short while, and, and then the aftershocks came for days afterward, and they froze me in fear. Well, this morning, I want to talk to you a little bit about the job of a prophet. You see, because prophets write things that, you know, are en enigmatic at best, and sometimes just plain confusing. And we start to get some clarity about what the prophets are saying and what they're writing if we understand what their job is. They have an awesome job. They saw visions. They foretold future events. They heard the voice of God. They wrote scripture. But what exactly was their function? And I will say to you this. The function of a prophet is rooted in God's relationship with his people. A little bit of a history lesson. The function of a prophet was to go to God's people on God's behalf in a way that conformed to international political norms of the time. Both Isaiah and John, uh, the, the writer of Revelation, uh, they both functioned as emissaries or ambassadors that would go to a nation on behalf of the reigning emperor. The prophets played the role, played that role in God's governing of Israel and it was in keeping with the international conventions. So, what were those conventions, right? In those days, the emperor would, ex would emperors of empires would expand their territories, and they would set up local governments within those territories. And those local governments would be headed up by a king, and they would make treaties. The emperors would make treaties with these kings. And there were two types of treaties that, that uh, were made in those days. One was called a parity treaty, which is a treaty between equal nations or states. That's not what we have in Israel. The, uh, because the other kind of a treaty, which is what we have in Scripture, all throughout Scripture, is that of a suzerain vassal, an emperor, and a lesser king. They would make treaties with one another. <clears throat> These treaties were called covenants. You may have heard that term. God deals with his people, we've heard this morning already, in his covenants that he makes. And these were international conventions of the day. Within the Bible, we have different covenants. I know that uh, Blake, Pastor Blake is working through the book of Genesis with you. 
So you had the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. And then he sealed that covenant in chapter 17. And in these covenants, in the covenants with, Abraham, with Adam and Noah to start with, God established his rule over all creation. He made man, his image bearer, to rule over his kingdom with a mandate to make other image bearers and to spread the, unit, the beauty and the organization of the Garden of Eden to the ends of the world. But mankind did not keep faith with Yahweh, the great emperor of the earth, and they committed treason. However, God began to reveal himself in a series of covenants that would progressively demonstrate his justice and mercy. He made a covenant with Abraham about people and land. He made a covenant with Moses, where Moses was the mediator of the law. And then he made a covenant with David that he would have a royal dynasty forever. Yet in every one of these covenants, there was always a responsibility. And mankind proved to be not up to the challenge. To include David. David, neither David nor his descendants could live up to the treaty with the great king. And then finally, the new covenant, the covenant of redemption. So, these were different covenants that God, the emperor, the great suzerain, would make with his people, Israel. What were the parts of these covenants? And I, I promise you this is going somewhere, okay? The covenants were made up of at least three or four different parts. They, they, they consisted of the benevolence of the king, the requirements of loyalty, and then the punishment for disobedience and rewards for obedience. So benevolence of the king, the requirements of loyalty, and then the consequences for either obedience or for disobedience. And we can see examples of these covenants in, say, Exodus chapter 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. That's the benevolence of the king. And then he goes into the requirements of loyalty. You shall have no other gods before me. So in keeping with the conventions of the day, God made a covenant with his people. And then, on top of that, he, sent, he set his palace in Israel's capital city. The flagpole, the command post of God's rule, his throne room, was right next to David's throne. Not too far. Just down the street, actually. So, let's get to the job of the prophet. We haven't really talked about that. The suzerains and emperors did not often visit their vassal nations, but they sent ambassadors or emissaries with messages for the vassal king and his people. You see, the prophet was more than just a fortune teller and did more than just predict the future. He proclaimed a message of God. He declared God's benevolence. They reminded, the prophets would remind God's people of their requirements of loyalty. And they also reminded God's people of the promise of blessings for obedience and of judgment for disobedience. And both Isaiah and John were cut from the same mold. They were both prophets. Isaiah and John had the same purpose to encourage God's people to remain loyal to him. And a promise of blessing for obedience and threats for curses 
threatening curses for disobedience and disloyalty. Isaiah encouraged his contemporaries to be loyal to the Lord. And he also encouraged his future readers to repent of their sins and to trust the Lord to bring the faithful remnant of Israel and other nations to unprecedented blessings after exile. John wrote to encourage fidelity to Christ. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. It's not all about the second coming, although it, it, it is. It is about the second coming, but it's, it was a book written not to us, but to people back then with consequences for us, right? With promises for us. But it was written primarily to, a, to the seven churches to encourage them to have fidelity to Christ in the midst of suffering. And John affirmed that God rules history and will bring it to a glorious consummation of judgment and blessing in Christ. So what is the, what is the message to us this morning in Isaiah chapter 6 and in Revelation chapter 5? The message for us is this. The main thing we find in these texts is that the worship of God is literally central to everything in life. I don't care what vocation you're in, whether you're a fisherman, or whether you work at a diner, or whether you build houses or work as a mechanic, the worship of God is literally central to everything you do. We owe God and His vassal King, Jesus Christ, our true worship, because he has been gracious to us by revealing his holiness in our sinfulness. He has conquered our ultimate enemies, sin and death, and has promised to reinstate us as his co-regents over all the earth. Well, what is true worship then? God made human beings to be incurable worshipers. We all live for and are motivated by something or someone. What is it that motivates you? What is it that gets you out of bed in the morning? So what is true worship? That's the main... I want to cover this under three points this morning. What is true worship? And true worship begins with these foundational truths. How can I turn my vocation into worship? It begins with these foundational truths. Number one, seeing by faith God's holiness in our need for cleansing and atonement. Do you want to turn what you do every day into worship? Then it starts here. Seeing our need for cleansing and atonement. Number two, turning from our sin to Christ, our source of cleansing and atonement. And number three, Radically reorienting our lives as citizens of Jesus' kingdom. A proper view of ourselves in relationship to God, trusting not in our own efforts to make a name for ourselves, but fully resting on the reputation of the only human being to have ever fully pleased God, and reorienting our lives to follow the life of the kingdom of Christ. First of all, let's talk about that true worship is seeing God's holiness and confessing our need for cleansing and atonement. Verses 1 through 5, this passage comes at the end of a summary of Isaiah's message. Judgment is going to come. And it would consist of a destruction of everything the people knew. Verse 1 gives us the time and place of, uh, in history for the vision. Isaiah 
saw the temple for what it really was, the place of the world's great emperor, the palace of the world's great emperor, to whom the whole world is in arrears of its covenant obligations. The splendor of God is so awesome that even his closest attendants must avert their eyes and cover themselves out of awe and respect. When Isaiah sees the glorious splendor, he hears, and he hears the proclamation of God's holiness, he goes into shock and awe, the likes of which no military power could ever deliver. Isaiah feels the very foundation of the temple tremble as if it's going to come down on his head and crush him because of his sin and the sin of the people. And if it did come down and crush him, Isaiah knew that both he and his people would justly deserve that fate. You see, this great king is obviously king of the whole world. And his coming in the clouds of judgment would be a radical rearrangement of the entire cosmos, and nothing would ever be the same after that judgment. You see, no human being, king or leader or people, have ever been worthy of anything but the displeasure of God. We all have skeletons in our closet and are full of imperfections at best or downright utterly sinful at worst. Isaiah prophesied that a restoration would take place. He understood that somehow God would cleanse his people and turn their hearts back to him and make them loyal like never before. But how? How is he going to do this? God's people, even in the midst of their exile, continued to disobey God's law and violate the terms of the covenant. Israel, because of their persistent disobedience, even in the midst of their punishment, even in the midst of their exile to Babylon and Persia, had, had their exile ultimately extended seven times. It wasn't going to be just 70 years. That's what God was telling Daniel through the, through the archangel. It was going to be longer than that. And here's how dire the situation really is. The Westminster Larger Catechism's teaching on the phrase of the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It has this to say. Hear this. We are not only unable and unwilling to know and to do God's will, we are also prone to rebel against his will, complain against his providence, Every time we complain about the weather, every time we complain about the driver in front of us, we are taking the Lord's name in vain. Wow. We are cursing the creation he's made. And I'm as guilty as anybody. We... We are prone to rebel against his will, complain against his providence, and wholly inclined to do the will of the flesh and the devil. And in this prayer, we pray that God would, by his Spirit, take away our blindness, weakness, indisposedness, and perverseness of heart, and by his grace, make us able and willing to know, to do, and submit to his will in all things. In the words of the Apostle Paul, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. 
And whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that the whole world may be accountable to God. So what about you this morning? Have you come to a place in your life where you see, by faith, that God's holiness sheds a light on just how dark and sinful your heart is? Have I come to a point where I've seen the darkness of my heart? It's a question I need to ask myself every day. The first step to truly worshiping God is to see our utter sinfulness in the light of His holiness. The next, we must turn to Christ. From our sin to Christ. The only hope for Israel, and indeed the only hope for us, lies in the atonement that Isaiah received. Only in having his guilt removed and his sin atoned for, could he be made worthy to be sent out as God's emissary, as God's mouthpiece. The hope of Isaiah, our hope, lies within the holy seed, the stump of the tree that had been cut down in judgment. It is through this stump that we have our atonement. In John's Gospel, he writes that what Isaiah saw in that cosmic throne room was that mercy and judgment would have a meeting place. And that meeting place would be at the altar. And it would involve the shoot from the stump of the Holy Seed. What Isaiah saw and what all the prophets were perplexed by and longed to see in their day was what Phillips, Craig, and Dean sing about. Once there was a holy place, evidence of God's embrace, And I can almost see mercy's face pressed against the veil. From the time of Isaiah until the end of the extended captivity and occupation, when the Messiah finally came, Israel had had nothing but what C.S. Lewis' character, Mr. Tumnus, called always winter and never Christmas. But the new covenant, the one that would radically change everything, finally came and there was an end to the dark night. You see, there was another prophet, another vision of the courtroom, the courtroom of the king of the world, and one in which fear and trembling was replaced by awe and joyful worship by all the creatures of the cosmos. Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within And on the back, sealed with seven seals, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. 
And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed for God a people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked around, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering Mirads and mirads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Revelation 5 proclaims that God's great act of redemption, that in sending His only begotten Son, Jesus, to be the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Son of David that would rule forever, the faithful vassal King, the only one ever, who fulfilled all the duties of the covenant demands by God. And this vision in Revelation 7 harkens back to Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, where, where Daniel has the vision of the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man, one like the Son of Man, approaching the Ancient of Days, and he's given power and glory and honor. And it also squares with what Jesus said of himself in Matthew 28. He says, Right before he gives the Great Commission, he says this, All power and authority has been given unto me. Now go and make disciples. This one, this lamb who had been slain before the foundation of the the earth, he takes the scroll of the new covenant and he opens it and revealing all that God has purposed for all creation. And he was worthy to do so, the scripture says, because you have been slain. Jesus, by his life, dignified all things human. He dignified vocation by being a carpenter. And called, he called himself the good shepherd. These are two of the most humble vocations of all time. But by his death and resurrection, he paid the penalty for our cosmic treason. And he took upon himself the full weight of God's wrath for our sin. That same wrath that threatened to come down upon Isaiah actually came and fell on Christ and crushed Him. The passage goes on and says, You ransomed a people for God and made them a kingdom and priests. In Christ we see the holiness of God and His justice poured out. Jesus on the cross was the cosmic meeting place of justice and mercy. And by his resurrection, God restored humanity to its rightful position. Though we only perceive it by faith, now we in Christ are the keepers of the earth. We are called to tell this good news to others and to engage in all of our vocations for the glory of God. So, 
True worship is seeing our sinfulness in the light of God's holy law, turning from our own efforts to please Him to Christ who has already pleased Him. And finally, true worship is the radically reorienting of our lives to the coming kingdom. So what? What does this mean to me? The central message of the Bible is this. Christ, the mediator of the new covenant, is mankind's only hope for significance. You know, you can drive into Bangor on any given day, and you're going to drive by a building that has a man's name on it. Why do we put our names on the side of buildings? Isn't it a, a strive for significance? Jesus' life and his work gives us meaning for existence. And what is that meaning? It is to begin to live now in the new reality that we only perceive by faith. <clears throat> Jesus, though he is God himself, with all the rights and privileges of that position, nonetheless gave up his rightful place to come and qualify to be our vassal king. He fulfilled the requirements of mankind that God requires of each of us and took upon himself the death penalty we deserved. And his resurrection proves that God was satisfied with that atonement. And justice is no longer in the way because mercy came running. He has conquered our enemies' sin and death and could walk right up to the throne and take the new covenant scroll and reveal its contents. Christ has purchased his people out of the nations, not only to redeem them from sin, but to enable them to fulfill God's original mandate, to rule the earth. Jesus is our king, and we and would have us as his vice regents to rule the earth as God laid out in his law. How do we do this? Well, we do it by serving one another well, by loving one another, by loving our community, by loving God first and foremost. We begin by praying that God's kingdom that we perceive by faith would become a visible reality here on earth. And then we lean into our vocations that he has given us. Are you a mechanic like me? Then fix vehicles with the utmost integrity and make every effort to serve our customers well. Do you build houses? Build them as if you're building God's palace. No shortcuts in the quality of your work. Are you a nurse or a health care provider? Then work in partnership with other providers for the health of your patients. Educate your patients well. You see, true worship endures hardship. You know, in the Garden of Eden, just before they were evicted, Adam and Eve were cursed. Cursed is the, well, actually, the ground was cursed. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you'll eat of it all your life. Work is going to be hard. There's going to be trials. There's going to be struggles at work. Interpersonal conflict. But true, hard, true worship is enduring that hardship. Knowing that Christ, who is one of us, is ruling all things for our good and for his glory. We are faced with temptations to take control of our situations that really aren't in our control. And when things don't go our way, we profane the very one who is working all things for our good and his glory.
but trusting in Christ, the one who has given us our significance. That, my friends, is the meaning of the Advent we just had, Christmas. In all things we do, we do them out of love for the one who took away our sin and restored us to be the rulers of this earth that God intended us to be. Only a vision like this, God on his throne and the splendor of his majesty is the only one and the splendor of the majesty of the only one of us who is actively ruling all all things. Only his vision, only this vision will keep us oriented in the right direction. I don't know where you are this morning, what kind of struggles you're going through, but I do know this. God is still on that throne. And we have a representative sitting beside him, ruling all things. We only perceive it by faith. But it's just because it's by faith doesn't mean it's any less real. God's on his throne. Christ is ruling all things and defeating our enemies on our behalf. And we are called to participate in that victory. Let us pray. Lord, in all that we say and do, that we would bring glory to you. Lord, that we would be reminded daily through the reading of our reading of our of your word, through our fellowship with one another, through the experiences we experience, even even as we walk out of these doors, Lord, that we would be reminded that it is not of us, that this is your work and we get to participate in it with you. Lord, may your kingdom come. May your will be done here, just like it is in heaven. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.